Welcome to the first episode of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is my opportunity to talk to people who, like me, make theater and ask them the kinds of questions that we don't often ask each other, starting with, why theater? I hope you'll join me each week as I talk to people from all over Canada who make theater. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, and consider leaving a comment or rating. This episode's guest is Rebecca Perry, an actor, singer, and writer from Toronto. Her solo plays, Confessions of a Red-Headed Coffee Shop Girl and Adventures of a Red-Headed Coffee Shop Girl, have played at fringe festivals from Toronto to Edinburgh. Her newest show, From Judy to Bet, The Stars of Old Hollywood, opens January 6th at the Next Stage Theatre Festival in Toronto. Rebecca Perry, you have uh, you've had quite a quite a quite a year. Um, so you had so you did uh, you had, did your sequel to the Redhead Coffee Shop Girl at uh, Toronto Fringe Festival. You got it. That was impossible to get tickets to. <laughs> it, indeed, it was. I was very pleased about. I'm it. sure. I'm sure I wasn't. But um, <laughs> it's it's like you couldn't ask for more as a performer. Like to, to be selling out like that, um, and, and then, to have some some very generous media support <coughs> as well. Mm, yeah. um, like I was in, like ten, ten, ten sort of lists where it was like you were in five things like to check out or must see yeah. articles and stuff like that. Alongside a lot of people I respect, so yeah. that was cool. That was I mean, now you have you'd have, you were not an unknown. I mean, the play was new, but the first play, Redhead Coffee Shop Girl, was equally difficult to get tickets to the year before. The year before. That is correct. Um, so that sort of that sort of helped, and then you took the redheaded coffee shop girl to the Edinburgh Fringe, the big one, the, the big mothership, one, the mothership, <laughs> the mother of all fringe. <laughs> three thousand three hundred shows to compete against. My goodness, <laughs> my goodness, <laughs> including circus acts that like have been a part of Cirque du Soleil. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh my goodness! Like, how do you even like? Just, there is, that's the end of the sentence. How do you even... Dot, dot, dot. Yes. Like, going into that, how do you... Okay. What's the game plan for something, like, that, that big? Uh, I can tell you that it starts 11 months before the festival happens. Okay. Excuse me. Um, I got back from 2014 summer touring with Confessions of a Red-Headed Coffee Shop Girl, which, as you said, is the first of two shows about Joni Little, the... The quintessential coffee shop girl. And um, I had toured, I had done Toronto Fringe Festival, Saskatoon, and Victoria. And then I had uh, done a little stint in Toronto mm-hmm. at the One More Night Festival, mm-hmm. as well as filmed it with Bell TV, nice. um, which you can still check out on Bell 5, just saying, <laughs> just saying. Um, it was beautifully shot, so I'm proud of it. And and um, no sooner did I get back, and um, Derek Chua and I had coffee, of course, um, and I sort of sideways mentioned, like, I'm considering Edinburgh. You seem to co-produce a lot of really strong work that goes to Edinburgh. You know, will you take me under your wing? Um, and he didn't, he didn't quite say yes at that point, but he did say, come to my information session. Like, hear how intense this festival, <clears throat> festival will be and then make your mind up. Right. 
So I went there and um, it was the second time I'd attended that information festival because the first time I heard all this information, it was like too much to process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, I'll try again this year. Let's see if my brain can like wrap itself around the insanity of this idea and why so many people just sort of like throw themselves into a fire willingly. Um, and this and this time around when I went to the meeting, um, I noticed that a lot of people that I, I would want to travel to Scotland with were also going. Um, and that was actually motivation mm-hmm. to go. Uh, and thus began the planning literally in October 2014 <clears throat> for a show that wasn't going to happen until August 2015. Whoa. Yeah, because the meeting was in September. And then by October 1st, I sat down with the lovely... Um, Elena Mossoff, she's, she works for um, uh, Byron LeViolette and Moro and Jasmine, like a variety of people. Um, and essentially, she's sort of like a creative consultant. Mm-hmm. And we literally formulated a month-by-month plan on how to, to fundraise, um, on how to um, make sure all my um, materials for like PR and promotion were in place, who were the publicists I was going to like send love letters to, being mm-hmm. like, will you represent me, even though you know nothing about me? Yeah. Um, the one thing that did work in my favor in October was I started doing a lot of cold calls, uh, to, to publicists, even just to places to stay, yeah. uh, and to theaters. And I was ahead of the game in the sense that most of these emails and calls weren't coming until December. Ah. Um, and by the time December rolled around, I went to the fringe roadshow, which only happens in New York, London, and Edinburgh. So me and Crystal Bartelsi drove down to New York mm-hmm. during a snowstorm and got information from the actual, uh, the, the people that essentially run the Edinburgh Festival okay. Fringe, uh, Robin Jankovic Brown, Barry Churchwoods, some of the, um, the directors of the, um, the top four venues, um, were there to sort of talk about, um, what they can offer because the big, big difference with Edinburgh Fringe is you have to apply to get in. It's a juried festival, oh. even though there's 3000 or so spots, um, I know, for example, the theater that I got into, which is in the top four, um, after countless love letters and like fun little like reminder or fun fact about my show, it's done this. Um, I got in and they said, just so you know, like, take this seriously. We had 900 submissions and we accepted 111. So, so you it's, apply it's, to the venue, not do you yeah. apply you not to the festival? Yeah, you apply to the venue, and mm-hmm. once you have a venue, you're allowed to apply to the festival. Oh my god. And there's two deadlines, so it's crazy because, uh, like, for example, one of my friends, um, there's the early bird deadline, which you really want to make if you can help it, because then you're in the initial program and you're online two months before the second deadline. Okay. Um, so, in theory, that's two months more of ticket sales. Right. Um, and you save money, because it's early bird, and right. then they've got that sorted. Um, but I know someone who uh, got a venue offer two minutes before the early bird deadline. Oh happened. my God. Yeah. And that's like a common story. Oh wow. Wow. Um, and I think people are mostly vying for the top four, which is Pleasance, Gilded Balloon, Underbelly, and Assembly. Um, but there's this cool other movement, which I know Crystal Bartelzi can talk more about because I was roommate, roommates with her. I'm, I'm fairly schooled in the ways of the free fringe, which right. is like the total opposite where like, they have like bars and pubs where you just get like a small square to stand in and you perform your show to like a restaurant. Oh my. But you don't have to pay fees for being in a venue. Um, mm. All you really need to cover, I suppose, is your Edinburgh fringe fee. Right. Problem is, 
with the free fringe, there's no advanced tickets. That's oh my, how, oh my goodness. right, that's, which is frightening. That's like without a net. To to me, that's that's suicide. But to Crystal, she was like, "Let's see what happens." Yeah. So like, I commend her on her bravery, but I, I must admit, I'm someone who like you want to know. I obsessively yeah, check course, tickets, yeah. not not because it not because I care about the numbers, but because if I know in the morning that I have like one third of my household, then that gives me an idea of how many hours I should be out flyering and talking True, to people absolutely. Yeah. and how many flyers and posters to bring in my backpack for the day. Yeah. Um, so Edinburgh is a month long festival um, and you're competing with 3000 other, mm-hmm. other performers or performances, which includes like big name British comedians yeah. who just go there for fun to sort of take advantage of the fact that like there's, there's so many people there that go, Oh, I get to see this person for this ticket price. So how do you, is there a different tactic than, say, for a, a Canadian Fringe Festival when you're flyering? Do you have to go in with a different mindset, or is it all basically the same? You have to go in with a totally different mindset, mm-hmm. because they don't know the first thing about you. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say there are a few steps before flyering, which I, hello, we've got our cat, my cat joining us for this, not worry this about broadcast. This is fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so basically, before you even start flyering, um, I think the four most important things I can think of are mm-hmm. you need to pay some money to have your posters put up because you actually aren't allowed to poster yourself. Oh, really? You have to pay um, because they've essentially, monop- well, not monopolized, but they've, well, yeah, one company has monopolized all the poster space in Edinburgh. Really? And now they sell by space, which is a large cost. Yeah. But the most effective way of flyering, because if you think about it, for 30 days, Someone sees the same image. So even if they're not sold on you on day one, True. by the time you get some good reviews that you sticker on, yeah. maybe they're coming by day 30. So you can't put up your own poster, but you can go and you can embellish your poster? You can embellish. So for example, like once I got my first uh, five-star review, mm-hmm. I put that up. Right. I wanted to put up my first four-star review, but my publicist was like, no, 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 no. Just wait. Just be patient. Mm-hmm. Um and then she was right. It was smart because then all of a sudden you're sticking out amongst all the four stars all the and four three stars. stars. Yeah. Um, because after a while, I've noticed that people won't actually look at what's on the poster. They'll just look at the sticker on top of it. Okay. okay. So that's step one and two. Mm-hmm. Um, step three is you can buy ad space in all the hundreds of reviewers, uh, magazines, catalogs, and blogs. Um, I did a sprinkling of that mm-hmm. um, because I thought my money was better spent with the poster scheme. I yeah. was right. Yeah. Um, and then, last but not least, um, your venue will let you do a certain amount of advertisement. So um, that could be you have your own flyering team for the days when you know you're busy maybe doing an interview somewhere else. Do the venues provide a team? Uh, the I know the top four do, but I don't okay. know if they all do. Mm. I'm My experience of Edinburgh Fringe is different than like the Free Fringe because of course, there's yes. rules to everything that I wanted to participate right. in. Whereas I almost see Free Fringe as similar to Canadian Fringes okay. where it's like all bets are off. Do whatever you want. Right. Um, so you could put posters within the castle. Uh, or my venue was a castle. Yes. Um, like an actual awesome castle. Uh, it's crazy. Um, you could um, do cool things like I had coffee sleeves go on the drinks that were served at all the cafes within mm. the uh, 12 venues that, that the Gilded Balloon, my venue slash castle, had. Um, and then there's also things like uh, they'd have these TVs that would go with like sort of these ticker tape images and you could pay to have like one of your images flash across. Okay. So like redheaded coffee shop girls, five star fringe guru or right. whatever. Yeah. And then once all that was in place, it made flyering a whole lot easier because there was a good chance if you were flyering around your venue, mm. 
someone had at least seen the image of your poster or they knew like a, a sprinkle of information mm. about you already. So, mm-hmm. so I must admit my job was made easy by investing in those things, all of which were recommended by my venue and by Derek Chua, yeah. who did wind up co-producing for me. Um, and then it's all about being creative when you fire someone. It I find in Canadian fringes, you can kind of just go, hey, can I tell you about my show? Like, people there hear that 45 times a day. Right. So, like, I would start with, like, a quirky fact about caffeination or, like, did you know that this kind of coffee is the most popular in the world? Did you know that, like, Starbucks has 85% uh, of the world's coffee uh, within their hands? Or, like, things mm-hmm. like that that um, would literally just make people turn their heads and then they'd look at me like, who is this crazed redhead <laughs> who does not have a British accent? And um, and then I would actually strike up a conversation and tell them about my show. Did you find out the hard way that that um, like, can I tell you about my show is not the right way to start, or did you absolutely the the second day I had I still had about nine or ten more tickets to sell, um, and the the preview the day before had sold out, so I was like, let's see if I can like sell out another show. Like I was really jacked on do- getting that done, and the first girl I approached told me to piss off, <laughs> and I was like, it's day two. Like how am I going to survive thirty days of this? And so I literally just sat in a cafe that had, like, a bunch of patio tables, and I just watched, like, other people that seemed to know what they were doing, and I would kind of, like, eavesdrop on what they were saying. And there was this one clown who actually would say nothing. He would hand them a flyer, and then he would, like, look at something they were wearing and sing a song about it. Like, I watched him sing about this girl's purple shirt, or, like, this one girl's curly hair, or that guy's cool sneakers. Um, So, like... I was just like, okay, so I just need to do something different. Mm. Um, the other big difference is it can't be a quick pitch. You either lock and load and like stay with them for a minute and a half or just don't even bother. Really? Because if someone only spends 15 seconds telling, talking to them about their show or, or why they think the show is good for them, that's, that's still going to happen at least 20 times to that person right. in that day, maybe even within half of the day. So you've got to like have an actual conversation yeah. with somebody. What's nice is um, there was patios within my venue, so, like, obviously that person would already be at Gilded Balloon to see shows that were happening Mm -hmm. there, so that was cool. Um, That was also an advantage. Um, Honestly, though, when I started feeling like I wasn't doing a good job at flyering, I would just target redheads. That's just such an obvious one. Or anyone who had a coffee cup in their hand, Mm -hmm. which, when people are trying to see, like, ten pieces of theater a day, it, it gets pretty... Intense, and so pretty much everyone has a cup of coffee in their hand. Yes. I also yeah. started serving little shots of espresso to some of the longer lineups that were at my venue, but I actually had to get, like, written permission from not only, like, the artistic director of all the uh, venues in Gilded Balloon, I had to get, like, a license. Like, it's everything. You have to go about it in, like, a legal wow. way. Yeah, there's wow. there's rules to everything. You can't you can't spit without asking permission. Wow. Yeah. That's that's pretty intense. It's strange. I kind of felt like um, like a festival shouldn't have that many rules, but then I realized that's the only way to keep this chaos well, organized. With 3,000 performers, I guess over time they've had to really come up with these rules. Otherwise... I, it's probably from trial and error. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when you were preparing to go... Mm-hmm. Um, did you, did you like work out your game plan before you went? Did you? 
As far as like strategy on like how for, to sell my how show, to sell your show, all that stuff. Oh, like absolutely. You had all that stuff. I'd say the posters were purchased by like March. Yeah. Like everything. I think the biggest thing that sort of shocked me was how ready I had to have all my PR materials. Um, basically, the minute I took a trip to England in February um, mm-hmm. to visit my boyfriend, who's British, and and I met with a bunch of PR girls yeah. there, and I found a publicist. And the minute I signed the contract with her. From that point on, I was answering like five or six emails a day where I had to provide like, um, you know, a, a poster that's this size or like a little quote about my show that is that talks about singing or talks about acting or mm-hmm. like uh, production stills or rehearsal shots. Like, I think I've never had so many emails go back and forth where like I, ha- I had to have like an on-call graphic designer. <laughs> what? What was your, your mindset like heading over there? Like, I was so overwhelmed. Yeah? I was beyond overwhelmed. Um, and I know all the other teams were too. Um, what I did, which I wouldn't do next year, but I thought it would help. Uh, I went there early and I went to Glasgow to try and just like chill out before I went to Edinburgh mm-hmm. and like stepped into this crazy festival. But frankly, all I wound up doing in Glasgow was not enjoying the city, but mostly contacting my publicist mm-hmm. and sending out letters to various producers because the goal over there is, I'm here in this international market. Will you come and see my show? Right. Does this show hold any interest yes, for you? Yes, yeah. That's the entire reason I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably contacted about 300 producers wow. and or artistic directors and sent at least six or seven emails back and forth throughout July and August, I'd say, because the list isn't released until about the beginning of July. So yeah, I was very overwhelmed until the day I got there. um, When I sort of found out that our, our, our preview was sold out. um, So I could kind of calm down a little. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'd say from there on in, it was still, it was a roller coaster ride, but it just every day, it was like a different issue. Mm -hmm. That being said, it was single-handedly the most amazing experience of my life. I am almost afraid to go back because I had such a good experience. Right. So, like, overall, amazing? It was, yeah. Like, it's it's tons of work, and I'm sure if you asked me how the festival was going in the middle, I'd be like, I can't think. Mm-hmm. But, but, yeah. um, but when I look back on it now, like, every day I was seeing amazing theater from all over the world, and people bring their A game there. They don't just like throw something together last minute because you've invested so much money yeah. to be there that unless you sell your show out or have some sort of independently wealthy donor, like you're not going to make your money back. Yeah. So it has to be about bringing the best show possible because the only way of recouping, but then going beyond that, is if it gets picked up to tour. So no. Uh, creating your show once you get in. God, no. Yeah. No, which I know it. a lot of Canadian artists do on the Canadian On the Canadian, fringe. you can you can do that. Yeah, you could, like, I know people uh, who shall remain nameless that start kind of putting their show together in Montreal, mm-hmm. and then by the time it's in Vancouver, they're getting yeah. five-star reviews. And, like, that's great because there's less money at stake, so I suppose there's less risk, and it can be a creative exercise on improving from city to city. Mm-hmm. You can't do that in Edinburgh. Because the first review you get is the first thing that will pop up when people look up your show. Right. And because there's 3,000 other shows they could choose from, they owe you nothing. With those kinds of numbers, you can't not bring your A game. It's like dog eat dog. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) What was... Because I know when I did Montreal, one of the first things that somebody said was um, that competition, while 
a little bit is healthy, that there's audience enough for everyone. And I have always found that in uh, most French festivals in Canada, that there's audience audience enough for everyone. In in Edinburgh, is it is it cutthroat? There's not audience enough for everybody. Mm. Um, well, actually, like the person, my boyfriend, the person that I'm currently dating, David Kingsmill, has done the festival three times and. The first year, he sold out his entire run. The mm-hmm. second year, he had to cancel four sh- four shows because no one showed up. Um, and the third year, he said it was like it was like this: like there'd be three people one day, twenty five the next, sixty the next. Like oh you, God. you truly don't know how your show is going to be mm-hmm. received. You can try and stack the odds in your favor, but there always seems to be some sort of hot topic every time you go to the festival. You don't know what it is until no, you get there, no. and then all of a sudden, there's enough shows that are sort of similar that all of a sudden the media is featuring them. Right. So one thing I did sort of luck out on, uh, feminism and just, and females, um, you know, just taking charge and then kicking butt seemed to be a theme this year because there were so many cool sort of solo shows. There was one about a girl who was a superhero by night and a businesswoman by day. Um, there was this amazing clown piece. Um, there was some cool cabaret stuff that was just about women Kicking butt. And so, luckily, I kind of got lumped into that group that would get featured. And there was also this theme of people in the service industry telling stories. So, that was also um, two niches that I fit into. And then, of course, my biggest audience of all, the gingers. (laughs) I I met amazing amounts of people that have hair far redder than mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was, like, families of, Mm -hmm. like, all redheaded or or ginger mm-hmm. uh, kids, mom and dad included, uh, just coming to see it to see what I had to say about yeah. being pale with freckles, <laughs> which was great because like yeah. uh, the show is sort of sprinkled with jokes throughout um, because growing up that was something I was conscious about and course, now yeah. I can make light of it. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because you were talking about, you know, fitting into that, the, 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 about the, 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 hot women, the hot topics, yeah. the, the, the topic of women and feminism. Which is generally, I'm finding, a topic in theater circles these days about the lack of women playwrights being produced. Directors. And, and equity in theater and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Um, so, uh, timely. Um, and, and Absolutely. Uh, an important conversation. That, and that and needs just to as hot over there, um, one of the really cool things that I like about the Toronto Fringe is that it's, it's run by... Um, mostly women uh, who are, are wonderful businesswomen and and the same thing with the the fringe festival over there it's it's a very good mix of of everybody um, whereas I know um, it was sort of pointed out to me by somebody who like does the Edinburgh friend fringe every year uh, I think Steve Larkin uh, he just sort of said like a little while ago like there was absolutely no women working there and he thinks that now that they've got like Women, men, young, old, um, various creeds, religions, and races, um, the festival now has a broader lens into what kind of shows are getting in mm. because everyone feels like they are spoken for or have certain right. people they can connect with within the giant metropolis that is the Edinburgh Fringe Office. Yeah. There's actually three. There's like there's one for like participants where they can go to like chill out and get advice. There's one for like people that are looking to talk about producers because mm-hmm. they have like a list of like 6,000 people coming in as they try and like match make who right. you should be talking to. And then there's also um, sort of like the admin office as well, I guess, if I'm remembering correctly. Wow. It's insane. It's like a machine. It's a business. It's yeah. not, I think I think of Canadian fringes as like 
these amazing fun organizations that sort of only happen in the summer, but it became evident to me that Edinburgh Fringe is a year-round mm. business yeah. that actually sustains some people in Edinburgh. Wow. Like, I met people who can charge 80 pounds a night to rent out their, like, living room. And if you do that for one month, yeah, all of a sudden, you're covered till Christmas. Like, it's crazy. That's or, great. like, a tomato is two pounds. <laughs> like, it's just... It's scary, though, yeah. coming in. Like, I had to... Especially someone who does not eat gluten... Um, I had to pay a lot of money for food. I'll bet you did. Yeah. I'll bet you did. Mm-hmm. Um, could we talk about uh, From Judy to Bet? Yeah. Uh, at the... Uh, the Next the Stage Theater Festival? Festival? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, in terms of... So, this is no longer... Uh, a red-headed uh, red venture? Red-headed uh, coffee shop girl. No. This is, this is something Breaking else. out. Can you tell me a little bit about, about what that what that is? Absolutely. Um, I... Uh, I sort of just took a, a leap of faith and applied to the Next Stage Theater Festival with this this brand new um, idea. Uh, and although it's not a redheaded coffee shop girl venture, I must admit it features at least two redheads mm-hmm. from the 1940s and 50s. Um, it's I, I got in for the 30-minute slot at the Factory Theater in the Antechamber, which is a very much a, a cabaret bar mm-hmm. type setting. So I proposed the idea of a show that essentially pays tribute um, to Judy Garland, um, who is very famous for being in Wizard of Oz, Mm -hmm. among many other things, Lucille Ball of the I Love Lucy show, Betty Hutton, uh, made famous by the movie Annie Get Your Gun, and Bette Davis, who's famous for a number of uh, dramatic roles in movies. Uh, The reason I chose these four women is because, on the topic of feminism, uh, back when um, Hollywood was essentially being run by mostly men and there it was sort of these like faceless businesses where these women or men uh were put into two-year contracts by warner brothers or mgm and they didn't actually have that much say as to what movies they were featured in mm-hmm. and so it's funny because they worked so hard to get there signed these contracts thinking they had made it and then they were just shoved into like the chorus of 42nd street mm-hmm. or or this or that mm-hmm. so i chose these four women because they actually all either broke their contracts fought for the roles they wanted, or just said, screw this, I'm making my own work. Um, So, for example, uh, Judy Garland, um, the movie A Star is Born, she had to speak up and storm into an office and audition in front of somebody who was doing paperwork to say, you need to try me out for this Mm -hmm. role. And this is after she was extremely famous. Yeah. Um, Lucille Ball just started writing, um, or well, she didn't write all of the I Love Lucy show, but she did contribute to many of the skits. But she started producing I Love Lucy and alongside her husband so she could have creative control in a time where nobody would let her put her ideas on the table. So she got her own team of writers and made her own show, which is wildly successful. Well, Desi Lu became yeah. like this huge powerhouse Exactly. They produced Star Trek for Exactly, one thing. right? Like, like it's yeah. just crazy. Um, and so I sort of talk about her and how she also put forth the idea that women could be funny even if they were housewives or this or that like there was a voice for funny women not just attractive women in television and betty hutton did the same sort of thing for annie get your gun she showed that like comedic chops and like brassy campiness um is also extremely enjoyable you don't always have to be you know poised and singing something cute you can get loud and and sassy um and then of course bet davis is just seven kinds of amazing in my eyes um 
I think my favorite thing about her is that she broke one of her contracts with Warner Brothers so that she could be in Of Human Bondage, which was the movie version of Somerset Mom's mm-hmm. book. And she won an Oscar for it. And mm. she hadn't basically said, screw you, to yeah. this scary corporation that was threatening to thre- threatening legal action if she broke this contract. Uh, she maybe wouldn't be as famous as she is today. Mm. And so it's not necessarily me paying tribute to the fact that they're famous. It's that I think they all took a step in the right direction um, and fought the good fight in a time where feminism wasn't even a concept. Mm. Uh, it was It was just you kind of had to do what you had to do and these women all took charge of their careers, which is something I identify with because mm-hmm. I find that the Toronto theatre landscape is a very tricky one to have sustained work. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because um, it's not New York, it's not LA. Um, so I, I sort of, I like to think of these four women as, as guidelines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was your process like in creating this show? Um, it was pretty collective. Uh, it's actually still... Things are still being changed, even though it opens in three weeks, because a cabaret is about having that loose improv feeling Mm -hmm. where you are sharing stories and songs, but they're all tied into one theme. And so, of course, mine is women who refuse to be just another ingenue. They took charge of their their lives, their careers, and their roles. Um, So, essentially, it's mostly been uh, Quinton Naughton and I figuring out which songs we wanted to feature... um, that either Judy Garland or Betty Hutton have sung, and then sort of what comedic skits I like that Lucille Ball has done. Um, she also has some pretty cool songs because she she had a few engagements on Broadway, uh, as well as some of these amazing dramatic monologues that Bette Davis had. Mm-hmm. And so we essentially gathered all this information and weeded it away bit by bit because um, I think what helped prove uh, the the theme I'm going for or or contribute to it became evident. Yeah. Hmm. So, but there's still little bits here and there where I'm like, I'm not sure if I still want this in because I've only got a half an hour. So right. So, so you have to be really careful about what you right now. Choose. Right now, we're sort of still combing through a few things. Going, that's not like a power punch of entertainment, hmm. and that that was our agreement going in. Um, my director, myself, and and Quentin, my musical director, is that this has to be like 30 minutes of like in your face, wow. <laughs> hmm. So, how did? So you, you chose specific things, but what was your criteria for In Your Face Wow? Can you... Uh, that's true. That is a, a broad <laughs> broad stroke to paint, isn't it? Um, essentially, uh, if I thought it, it told an important story of their life, because I, I juxtapose the fact that a lot of their career sec- successes were happening while they were having um, family or life lows. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, taking over the rainbow and singing it the way Judy was actually feeling at the time, not the way she was told to act it. Mm-hmm. Or um, taking one of Bette Davis's most uh, quirky roles and then talking about all the legal fees she was being uh, impounded with mm-hmm. that same afternoon. Or things like that, like um, where there's there's a power punch of two things going on. It can't just be, oh, I like this song, let's right. sing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or I think for Lucy, I don't want to do just like the skits everybody knows, like... Like the famous one where she's um, trying to the chocolates, yeah, exactly. Of course, you know that that like because everyone knows that already. First one that I thought of. That's the one you can't possibly do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So I was thinking of of some of the ones where like uh, it's evident that this is funny and this is great material, um, but also something else is going on, or there's a reason Mm -hmm. she wrote it. I won't say much more because I've chosen a very specific one. Of course, yeah. Uh, But um, but yeah, that's sort of that's been the weeding out process, Mm -hmm. if you will. Um, because when I initially submitted this, it was very much a concept, 
where I did have like a, a draft script and things like that. But I did sort of say like, I, I love these women for different reasons. So this might change by the time it gets to the stage because I want to represent them and, and pay tribute to them as best as possible. Yeah. And these are just my initial thoughts. Initial thoughts, yeah. And it's only a half an hour. And so that's why I sort of did put that as a caveat of because I, I don't want people to think I'm in any way making, making fun of them or only spotlighting a certain part of their lives. And mm-hmm. so I think, I think the biggest challenge so far has been you've got 30 minutes. What is absolutely necessary to say? That's, I mean, that's important anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, so you can't, you can't waste any time with 30 yeah. minutes. Yeah. So. And, and I think another thing was uh, I, I hired Michael Rubenstein as my director because he's very passionate about these women and what they stand for as mm-hmm. well. And so we made sure that it doesn't feel like a history lesson. It feels right. like a sharing of ideas and things people are passionate about um, all wrapped under songs and stories. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And that's right out right in the new year i know it's happening in three and a half weeks three and a half weeks. three and a half weeks january 6th to 17th there's three and a half weeks as we're recording this as we are recording before this. the christmas holidays mm-hmm. um so have you done next stage before is this no, your first this next is my stage? very first i'm really excited and nervous <laughs> it's it's a different beast. It's, diff- it's a different beast. It's a lot colder than Fringe. It is. January is yeah. the new July. Yeah, January is the new I think July. that's their slogan this year, uh, this, Okay, well, okay, well. Um, <laughs> I've done it. I've done it. I don't know if it'll be as cold this year as it has been in previous years. Oh, you in the right polar now. vortex year? Well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows what it's going to be once we get into that into that, that time. Um, so this is this is like a thirty minute show, yeah, which need... is a lot shorter than than what you've done previously. It's true. Both of my other shows have been sixty minutes, and now that both of them are sort of taking the jump out of the festival circuit, I'm actually I'm working on expanding them both to seventy five minutes. You have to feel you have to like sixty is yeah. not quite enough to, to make something people I feel in like a ticket. Yep, ticket price. A, a um, lot of producers would. One of their first questions would be, how long is your show? Right. Do you have an expanded version? Okay, now let's talk. Yeah. So uh, I kind of had to be like, I don't, but I could. <laughs> so what is, uh, first? I guess, first question, are you planning to go back to Edinburgh? Yes, I have been invited back. Um, and so right now um, I'm trying to see if the same venue... Uh, will co-produce, which is something they will do if an artist has had success mm-hmm. and they're bringing back the same show for like a second hurrah. Um, so I'm just trying to see what... Would you want to do the same show or would you want to do... Uh, I thought uh, about bringing Adventures, yeah. but I, I've noticed that a lot of shows have success going back a second time and then you really have set the stage right. for people to remember you for when you bring a sequel. One. Right, okay. So I will go back with Confessions again. Mm-hmm. Um, also because I think I could... Because it was... It's overwhelming the first time you do anything. I think I could make better use of my time as far as connecting with producers. Because there's also all these amazing workshops you can be taking. Mm -hmm. Like, at any given point, you could be 17 different places. And so I think um, this time around, I will treat it much more like a a business venture. Whereas last time, I think it was also to creatively expand my knowledge of how theater is made. And you also, if you were to go back, you have the... You have the the cachet of like you sold out the shows. Yes, I, I would have good advertising power, yeah. and and I think I'd be able to find a good publicist again, mm-hmm. and um, and hopefully make a second splash. Yeah, yeah. Is is do you plan to take uh, Joni uh, a, across Canada again? Do you like what's um, your? There is some stuff happening in the UK, uh, which I'm still confirming, mm-hmm. so I can't be like I'm going here, 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 and yeah. here, but um. 
But some things are in the works um, for, like, I guess a UK tour, mm-hmm. if you will, um, happening further down the line um, in 2016. Um, and also, there's some things in the works in Ontario at various theaters, like um, uh, the Bur- Burlington Center for the Arts, Theater Sudbury. There's, there's like, mm-hmm. there's uh, some possibilities. Nothing is confirmed, but. Um, What's so funny is you take your show, your Canadian show, to Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and people that it's hard to get to come in Toronto to see your show what will go to Scotland it? and see your show. That's crazy. It's insane. That's crazy. Um, so all these opportunities are presenting themselves, but I also, when you're jumping out of the festival um, sort of mindset and into actual theater business, you need... Uh, you need to completely sh- switch gears. So right now, I felt like there was this sort of learning curve that I'm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very much coming face to face with, uh, and and adapting as quickly as I can so that I can be a, a smart businesswoman. So an interesting question because the one of the last times we we talked, mm-hmm. you were talking about all of the the shows that you were looking forward to auditioning for. I think at one point you talked about auditioning for once and things like right. that. Right. Um, but now it seems like you're more. Uh, heading towards that, like, like being producer, like, producer slash, slash artist actor lifestyle. sort of thing. Is that is that really where you want to go now? Is that? Um, it's funny. I'm actually still doing a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a good year on all fronts. I had a, a lead in a movie that is going to be on Netflix soon. Um, okay, that's great. And I had um, two two really good voiceover gigs mm-hmm. for animation movies that are cool. are one's going to be on TV and one is going to be online. So. Mm-hmm. I'm still very much in the scene, um, uh, everywhere except uh, being on stage, like, <laughs> like fi- film, voiceover, yeah. TV. Yes, um, but yeah, I think I've taken this a small step back from theater and musical theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so funny because no sooner did I decide that, and then I got this one. Uh, I, I sort of called my agent and said, like, "Hey, let's take a break for 2016." Yeah. Is that cool? We'll talk in 2017. I've got some other plans, aka world domination, but also planning of a, a coffee shop yeah. girl tour. <laughs> and um, and he was like, "Yeah, that's great, but uh, you do have one more audition, uh, which was for Roseneath Theater, and um, and I am now going to be going on tour with them for all of January, February, and March <laughs> in, in my very first Equity contract." Nice. Wow, so that's... so I'm still here and there. You never know what what the universe is going to send well, your so way funny, when you start doing a thing. I literally sent the email to my agent, and the next day he was like, "Just by the way, <laughs> like, go to this." Yeah. <laughs> do you do you see yourself like? Do you enjoy the self producing? I really do. Um, it's not my favorite thing in the world, but I'm kind of getting a kick on seeing how far I can take this because yeah. I I never even thought it could jump out of the festival circuit, but. If all goes according to plan, it will. Yeah. Um, fingers crossed. Yeah. It's a different kind of skill set, the self-producer. Oh like God, yes. The thing they don't quite prepare you for. No, no. The business of yeah. acting at George Brown is a wonderful unit, but I feel like they don't self-producing really... should be its own one-year program. Totally. There should be. There should yeah. be. A... I know that... It could maybe even be like a fourth year. Like... Totally. Because I, I know that's something, or to my mind, that's something that's been sort of missed previously in... in in like conservatory programs and things like that, they very much prepare you for the business of auditioning, mm-hmm. working, getting the next gig, but not so much for the self-producing, mm-hmm. um, which can be a rush on its own. 
It is. It's a total rush if it goes well, but it's also the most soul-crushing thing if it goes wrong. That's, I think, one of the things they should be teaching you. Is yeah. Like, like it's, your show may not, won't always succeed. What, what do you do, what if, do, it you do if it's not going well? I think the sheer horror of something not going well that you are producing is enough to make you give it your absolute all. Absolutely. Um, so that has served me well because I've now been able to apply that mentality to other parts of my life. That's, like yeah. like auditioning or or once you have a gig being the best representation of yourself or yeah. things like that because producers never stop doing business. No, they don't. I think they one don't. of the big things I've needed to learn was when to take a weekend or like to turn my cell phone off because mm-hmm. now that I'm literally my own agent of me and my shows, mm-hmm. it's it's like... Like, for example, today I've had a conference call with with someone in Scotland, with someone in England, and with mm-hmm. someone in Poland, but I've also had all these other things to do for From Judy to Bed. Of course, uh, yeah. It's time management. That, and any tips for people who might like find themselves in that, <laughs> that similar situation <laughs> in the future? What's, uh, what's the... Let's have coffee, but, but if, you are, <laughs> if you are two provinces away, I think the biggest thing is treat yourself like a business regardless of whether you're making money. Mm-hmm. I think... Because producers essentially manage money so that something is financially feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially with indie theater, you're not really like making money. You're just managing it. But you still need to treat yourself as though you were a law firm or you were running your own restaurant or whatever. Or else you'll just get sick of it all and frustrated and, and you will miss all these deadlines, and then people right. will get the wrong impression and of you. You also need to take some take a day off. And, now yeah, and, you need to take a weekend. Which is the hardest thing as an entrepreneur time. for people to, oh, to God, like, yeah. give themselves permission to take a day off. And Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. And because and I, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, like, like my graphic designer, or um, even just um, there was one publicist I was looking at at one point who – is very much a go-getter. Um, one of the things I ask is like, what are your off hours so that I can contact you within the times you're actually doing business? Mm-hmm. And if they say like, whenever I get a little scared yeah, because no, then that means like they will also contact me whenever yeah. and I need to give a lickety split answer. Yeah. That, I mean, that's sort of a, a, a frightening thing like, mm-hmm. to, to hear somebody say contact me whenever. Cause then they're not taking time off, which means you can't either. That's it's right. interesting yeah. how that's a two way street. Yeah. And through trial and error, there have been, points this year where I've had too many things to do at once and I've I've disappointed people because I haven't gotten back to them on time or what have you and so now I think my goal for 2016 is to properly budget my time Mm -hmm. but also add in spare time yeah yeah or else you go crazy what do you do in your spare time time? when you take the day off how do you how do you well it's funny that's that's why I need to actually budget spare time because I usually wind up taking like a promotional shift or a catering shift just because <laughs> just like when you're producing your own work you have to budget so well that it's never going to be perfect so mm-hmm. you've always got to do something to even out of course, the bills yeah. um, and, and like I said producing doesn't make you much money it's no. more figuring out if there's enough to get from point A to point B because right. touring is so expensive yeah like yeah. it's I think a lot of actors are mystified when I actually talk solid numbers. I've even had discussions with some of my own team members that where they're like, whoa, I didn't realize that cost that much. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, unfortunately, probably working another job, but if I'm lucky enough to actually have a day off, mm-hmm. um, I love rock climbing, uh, or uh, my boyfriend and I are film buffs, so we'll check out mm-hmm. something at TIFF, nice. um, or um, 
because I do consider this re relaxing, is, is typing out new ideas, things mm. that maybe I want to do in the future. Yeah. Well, it's important that if writing is a thing that you do, that it becomes a thing that you still like to do. Right? Yeah, that's true, because I've been angry at my laptop before where I'm like, I don't want to type. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, everybody <laughs> Or I'm afraid of my word. inbox. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, there's yeah. 80 emails I have to answer. Yeah. You know, you know what I do when that happens? If there's like a whole lot of that, I don't use the laptop. I use uh, pen and paper just to... That's smart. Just to get away. Also, oh, I'm going to take your advice then. <laughs> also, I figured out that, that um, if you write something in paper, when you have to go to put it into the computer, mm -hmm. that's another draft. Because as you're, as you're transcribing it, you will um, edit and go, okay, no, this doesn't work, but this will. And sort That's of like do that great. as you're transcribing. I am absolutely going to do that because there are times where I, I give the most sort of short answer that doesn't actually fix a problem. It just mm -hmm. is like, well, here's this answer and then the other one's coming. Yeah. Yeah. So that's smart. Pen and I paper like gets you away from the electronics. So it's yeah. something that more people should do. <laughs> I, I mean, it, as, as somebody who is like tied to their devices, both in my day job and right? often in the evening, Oh, I bet. It's, you have it's, to. it's one of those things where like the realization, oh yeah, paper still I think, works. Yep. You know, is, is one of those things that, that you know, sort of a I've, revelation. I've got a friend who has a typewriter and that's how they write all their scripts. Oh, wow. I, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like that's that's like a lot of work. That's I think I'm gonna stick to the pen like, and paper. I, I mean, pen and paper is a little more like because I'm one of those people. Like if I'm writing, if I start, if ideas start to dry up, I'm a get up, move to a different spot, and keep writing because the movement mm -hmm. will will get the new ideas. It's a little harder to do with typewriter and paper. It's a pretty clunky uh, thing. You really can't even thing. really bring that to a coffee no. shop. Like you it have to is, love you your really have to. Yeah, you kind of piss people off if you're like. Yeah, you might like hearing that. Yeah, I don't think people really want to. He hear. lives alone. The person I'm specifically thinking of. Oh, so okay. I suppose well, he's lucky in that sense. That, that does help a lot. Yeah, but yeah, that's funny. Well, I think we're about at the end of our time. So yeah, thanks so much for for talking with me today. Of course, of course. Can I give my little plug for my Absolutely. next show? Absolutely, 100%. Let's talk about uh, okay. give the whole my 20 whole second feel. pitch. All the, right, as long a pitch as you need to. Amazing. So um, the show is called From Judy to Bet: The Stars of Old Hollywood, and it's happening at the Next Stage Theater Festival at the Factory Theater, uh, 125 Bathurst Street, January 6th to 17th. Tickets are only $10, and I can promise you a 30-minute power punch of entertainment. Uh, and I'll give you the little, little pitch for my show. Judy Garland, Bette Davis, Lucille Ball, and Betty Hutton. Trailblazers who refuse to be just another ingenue during the golden age of cinema. An evening of scandalous headlines and marvelous melodies. Thank you so much, Phil, and I uh, hope to see you around next stage. Thank you, absolutely.